narrator can be of great help to us in understanding an event. Uh, a narrator adds commentary and they give details that really enhance a story. And that is especially true when the narrator was part of those events. And I would submit to you from the outset that that's what we have in Psalm 22, that we have the most important event in human history narrated for us. Because what we have in Psalm 22 is from eternity past, we have the Lord Jesus Christ narrating for us His own death. It's a thought worth considering. The Lord Jesus Christ, from eternity past, narrated His own death. Psalm 22 gives us a first-person narrative from Jesus Himself. When we go to the Gospels, we, we get a third-person account. They, they tell us what Jesus did, what He said. They report to us the events of his crucifixion and burial and resurrection. But Psalm 22 stands out as unique and amazing in that we are given a first-person account from the lips of Jesus himself. Wherein the Son of God tells us he experienced, what he felt, the internal struggle that he wrestled with as he came sin for us, as a testimony to his love for us, he has given us this first person account of his suffering as he died in our place. Note that the most description of Jesus in the entire Bible comes from Jesus Himself in this 22nd Psalm. A first person narrative of the suffering of Jesus Christ. Now, outside of first person narrative, uh, the most striking feature of this psalm is what I pointed out to you already when we, we sung. Complete change in tone that takes place in verse 21. The first 21 verses are all about the writer's suffering. But then in verse 21, there's this brief statement. And if you have the ESV, it's not reflected great by the ESV. As in the Hebrew, verse 21 ends with a statement that's set off by itself, and it simply says, You have answered me. You have answered me. And then after that point, it's the voice of victory and praise that we hear. Up until that point, everything has been negative. It's been shame, ridicule, pain, abandonment. But then in verses 22 to 31, we hear the clear voice of victory. 
And I asked my kids this week in family worship what they thought might explain that change. And Hannah got it. When Jesus rose from the grave. That's the only thing that could explain this complete change in tone. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Psalm 22 finds its fulfillment in the suffering, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus Christ. It's an amazing thing to ponder. Our Savior narrated His own crucifixion and resurrection from the councils of eternity past, and He gave it to us as a testimony of His covenant love for us. And so I want us to begin by thinking about the narration of Christ's suffering. The narration of His suffering. And the first thing we see is that the writer is forsaken by God. Now, this, this, the title bears, it's a psalm of David. But we need to remember that while it is a psalm of David, the, the speaker ultimately is Christ. He's the eternal author of this psalm through the Holy Spirit. And we look at David's life, and there is, there is no incident in David's life that comes close to what is being described here. The speaker is Jesus. And it's reflected in the first few verses where we hear those words that Christ spoke on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is suffering that goes beyond David's experience. Nothing in his life corresponds to this suffering. And in fact, when we really think about it, it goes beyond any human experience. Because what is being described here is an execution, specifically a fiction it's someone narrating their own death narrating their own crucifixion and that is something no mere man can do and the gospel writers underline this for want us to see this connection in matthew 27 we we read now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there's darkness all over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Word for word, Christ quoted the exact words exact Hebrew words from Psalm 22. If you read in Hebrew the first line of Psalm 22, it would read, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. The gospel writers go out of the way to quote the Hebrew phrasing because they want us to see the connection with this 22nd Psalm. So if Christ narrated his own death from eternity past, he's 
not ultimately quoting David, but he's quoting himself. And this reminds us that our Savior knew all along that securing redemption for us meant that he must endure the terrible wrath of God, being forsaken by his Father for our sake. Now Christ clearly feels the pain of being forsaken by his Father, but you'll notice that he still gives praise to him. He praises the God who has forsaken him. Look, verses 3 to 6. He, he praises God, despite the fact that he is abandoned by him. And then he goes on to talk about these saints of old who trusted in God and they were saved. Uh, verse 4, they were delivered, they were rescued, they were not put to shame. That for a moment. God's mercy extended to these sinful saints of old. We don't have to read far in our Old Testament to see how sinful these saints were. But in verse 6, we, we get this vivid contrast where Christ says, But I am a worm and not a man. Do you see the contrast? Christ is contrasting himself with these sinful saints of the past. He's saying, you saved them. You gave them mercy, but I am a worm and not a man. Christ is not given the same benefits that these sinful saints of old enjoyed. God's presence for a time does not extend to Him. Friends, this contrast speaks to the substitutionary nature of Christ's death. He stood in our place as our representative and We were saved. We have been rescued. We will not be put to shame precisely because Christ was forsaken by God, considered to be a worm and not a man. He was our substitute. Christ's greatest Pain on the cross was caused by him being forsaken by his father. But we also see here, and it's a theme that we thought about last week, how he was also despised by men. Look at the second half of verse 6. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. And we read on and we see that this is not just a casual dislike, but this is an intense hatred. Verses 7 and 8, people reject him and they mock him. Verses 11 and following, he compares his enemies to animals. 
They don't even possess the normal mercy and pity that human beings have. He compares them to strong bulls, raging lions, dogs, all animals that seek to devour and kill. And the picture here is an accurate one. These enemies come together, they surround him, they encompass him on every side. They mock him, they unite to destroy him. And again, this is a theme we explored last week in our study of Job 19. That our Savior suffered alone, in isolation. No one helped him. No one aided him. It was all his work. Now, if we look more closely, we have these very specific descriptions of Christ's crucifixion. Uh, Perhaps the most vivid comes in verses 14 through 18. At the end of verse 16, they have pierced my hands and my feet. They stare and gloat over me. And, and this is, it is utterly amazing because what is being described here with amazing precision is a crucifixion. A method of execution that did not exist when David lived. And it's not just any crucifixion. We read... They divide my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast. Verses 14 and 15, both the actual and the metaphorical language aptly describe what happens during a crucifixion. Uh, His hands, his feet are pierced. All of my bones are out of joint. The the dislocation of of joints is pictured here. His bones are visible from extreme dehydration. He he says, my my heart is, it's like wax. And uh, the medical experts agree that, yes, that's, that's an apt metaphor for what happens. The the heart struggles to beat. It's like wax within a person. Uh, Even, um, he says, my strength is dried up like a pot's herd. We we talk about a shard of glass. A, A shard of pottery would be pottery that was broken and it was tossed out in the sun and it would dry up and crumble into dust. It's the language of extreme dehydration. Derek Kidner said this, he said, No incident in David's life can begin to account for this. The language of this psalm defies naturalistic explanation. The best account is in terms used by Peter concerning another psalm of David. Being therefore a prophet, he foresaw and spoke of the Christ. Friends, so suffered our Savior. 
abandoned by God, despised by men, suffering substitute. And he gives us this first person narrative to show us his And it should amaze us, activate us, as we get a glimpse into the experience of the Savior as He bore our sins. One writer framed it this way. He said, when the Father brought darkness over the land, sixth hour to the ninth hour. He said it was as if the Father shut the bronze doors of heaven so that what transpired at that moment Inspired between the Father and the Son alone. But then he went on to say, Jesus cracks open those bronze doors for his people that we might get a glimpse to what went on in the heart and mind of our Savior as he gave himself for us. should amaze us, captivate us as we get a glimpse into the heart of our Savior as He bore our sins. But that's the question, isn't it? Does it amaze us? Does it captivate us? Are we moved anymore? By the cross of Jesus Christ? Or has it just become ordinary? Have we become a bit bored hearing about Jesus and Him crucified? Burke Parsons, a a teaching fellow at Ligonier Ministries, wrote this. He said, one of my greatest fears for the church today is that we will become bored with the cross of Christ. I'm concerned that any mention of the cross is leading many professing Christians to say to themselves, yeah, I know all about Jesus dying on the cross for my sins, but let's move on to something else. If we become bored with the cross of Christ, and if we lose our punishment, of Christ and Him crucified, we will quickly begin to lose the entirety of Christian doctrine and practice. Are we captivated by the One who loved us and gave Himself for us? Now if you look at verse... 19, that is where we begin to see this transition, change in tone. And then in verse 21, we hear his prayer answered. And I I put the the New King James translation in your bulletin that reflects uh, the order of the Hebrew better. And you'll see how uh, there's this cry, save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. And then the statement off by itself that's the dividing point of the psalm is, you have answered me. And so Christ has suffered. He's forsaken by God. He's despised by men. But he, he continues to call 
upon his father and praise him, and now his prayer is answered. And if you want a, a, an exercise this, this afternoon that I, uh, I hope, hopefully would amaze you, go read Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, it's about the suffering servant, but it's, it's the father talking about his son, the suffering servant. And in Isaiah 49, 8, we hear the father say, I have answered you. And I would submit to you that that's the father's side of, of this interaction. Jesus says, you have answered me. The father says, yes, I have answered you. He was answered and we heard the first 21 verses, Christ, the suffering servant, speak. Now in verses 22 and following, it is the resurrected, exalted Savior speaking. He has finished the work set before him, and he now speaks as the glorious, exalted Savior. And so let's uh, think next about his victory narrated. Beginning in verse 22, we see this clear declaration of his victory. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. That's the resurrected Jesus in the midst of his congregation, in the midst of the church, declaring his victory. And I would submit to you that this envisions Jesus' role as prophet. His role as prophet that continues in his state of exaltation. The perfect prophet who speaks to us by his word and his spirit. And you'll notice here what he calls us. What does he call us? His brothers. His brothers and his sisters. And the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 2 draws upon this truth. He quotes this verse to emphasize the wonderful truth that Christ was made like us and he suffered in order to become our perfect, sympathetic Savior and high priest. That you have a brother in heaven who is your advocate. We are his brothers and his sisters. We have a risen Savior who identifies with us and cares for us as a brother. And then you'll notice the, how he is pictured in the midst of the church leading the people in worship. Look at verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in all of him. All you offspring of Israel. This verse pictured Christ as our great prophet. This one pictures him as our high priest and mediator, leading us into the presence of God, mediating our praises. When we gather together here on the Lord's Day, Christ is not only speaking to us as our prophet, but as our great high priest, he ushers us into the presence of the living God by the means of His blood shed for our sins. 
This is Christ. His victory as our prophet and our priest. And in a moment, we'll see His kingship mentioned. But look at the results of His victory in verses 25 and 26. He says, My vows I will perform before those who fear Him. The afflicted, and and the word, you'll see it footnoted in your Bible, the word should be poor. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. Now, it's easy for us to read right over something like that, but I would submit to you that there is, there is gospel in those words there. The background to this statement about vows is found in Leviticus and Numbers. When a person made a vow, we learned that at a f- the fulfillment of that vow, there was to be this two-day feast and the poor were to be invited to come eat freely at these feasts. And as this relates to Christ, it, it points to something much greater. Christ filled His vows. He kept His vow in the covenant of redemption. Uh, if you read the Gospel of John, John emphasizes this again and again, how Jesus had a sense of his mission, of his vow. I have finished the work my Father has given me to do. Vowed. He did what he vowed to do. He paid what he agreed to pay. His life as a ransom for many. And the fulfillment of that vow means a gift to us. That Christ, the bread of life, that we may come and we may eat and be satisfied. Now, if you look at verse 25, we have what's called a, sorry, it's the 26. It's a Hebrew parallelism. You'll notice the, the afflicted or the poor are equated in the next line with those who seek him. And that that shows us that this is not material poverty that's in view here, but spiritual poverty. You see, it's the exact idea that Jesus conveyed in the first beatitude. When he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, because Christ fulfilled his vow We have the nourishing bread that is Christ Himself and His poor people. He says, come and eat and be satisfied. Now you'll notice the further results of Christ's victory. Um, Verses 27 and 28, there is a kingdom that extends to the ends of the earth. We've already seen... Christ as our exalted prophet and priest, now here as our exalted king. He's given a kingdom, a people, the nations as a reward for his perfect sacrifice. And you'll notice the beauty of this. People from all nations, all classes of people come and they worship the Lord and they proclaim his glory to a coming generation. Kingship belongs to the Lord and He rules the nations. 
Friends, we are we're living evidence of, of this truth, are we not? We're part of the fulfillment of this prophecy. We are the people, we are the generations that have come to believe in Him. But finally, I want us to think about His finished work. Uh, look with me at verse 31. Uh, the, the ESV reads, They shall come and proclaim righteousness to a people yet unborn that He has done it. Um, now, if you have, I'm not sure if you have a version other than the SV, uh, it's either uh, it is in italics or it's heavily footnoted. And that's, that's because the word this, he has done this or he has done it, is not in the original translation. In Hebrew, this phrase can only mean, this last line of the psalm can only mean he has done, or it is done. He has done, or it is done. Well, he has done. He's done. He has done what? There's, there's, no, there's no direct object, and so it can't really stand that way. It makes more sense to translate it, it is done. It is done. It's a, a declaration of completion, that, that something is finished. Consider this. Matthew and Mark record that Jesus spoke the first lines of this psalm on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But we read in John 19 of Jesus' last words on the cross. When Jesus had received sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. I'm fully convinced that the last line of Psalm 22 was Jesus' last declaration on the cross It is finished. The late James Boyce wrote, The last verse of the psalm contains the words, He has done it, or more accurately, as the Hebrew word reflect, It is finished. These final words are linked to the proclamation of Christ's righteousness to a people yet unborn. So we know that they concern the gospel. Therefore, what was finished was the atonement by which the righteous demands of God for sin's punishment had been fully satisfied, and the righteousness of God was now able to be freely offered to all those who would believe upon Jesus. As Christ narrated His own death and we affirm that Christ was fully God, but He was also fully man. And it's not hard for Him, or hard for us, I think, to see Christ utilizing this psalm in some way upon the cross as He endured that unimaginable suffering to strengthen Himself 
to remind him in the words of Hebrews of the joy that was set before him. Psalm 22 likely encouraged our Savior to finish His work for us. It's a beautiful picture of Christ's passion and we have unique insight into the depth of His suffering and the result of His perfect sacrifice. From eternity past, Jesus narrated His own death. But I want you to consider this. Well, Christ narrated His own experience. He narrated yours as well. Because we deserved the execution, the punishment, the suffering, the abandonment described here in Psalm 22. We deserve to have God's wrath poured out upon us. It should have been us who was forsaken by God, considered to be worms and not humans. But Jesus suffered and died in our place. His atonement was substitutionary. He died in your place. And so while it should have been us, if you are in Christ, He stood in your place. And as we read earlier, we can proclaim with Paul that we have been crucified with Christ. And that means the experience of Psalm 22 belongs to us as well. We were crucified with Him. Buried with Him. Raised with Him. Sharing in His death and His victory. But if you are outside of Christ this morning, there is a a terrifying side to this psalm. Because if you have not trusted in Christ, then He is not your substitute. And that means that the fate narrated in Psalm 22 will be yours if you are without Christ. Abandonment. Separation from the gracious presence of God in hell. And for those outside of Christ, there will be no answer. It underlines your great need if you have not trusted in this crucified servant to trust in Him. To claim Him as your Savior and your substitute. To acknowledge your sin to Him. Know His forgiveness and His grace. But if you are in Christ, by virtue of your union with Him, this is your death to sin and the law. This is your victory over death and hell. And so it's fitting that we get to take these words upon our lips. He invites us to to own these words, the very words that were on His mind and His heart as He died for us. He says, come and Sing these with me. 
And so as we sing another portion of Psalm 22 to close the service, remember this, brothers and sisters. Remember the cost of your salvation. That these were the words that were on his mind and his heart as his body was broken, as his blood was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for Christ and him crucified. Lord, we thank you for this glorious glimpse into the heart of our Savior for us as he laid down his life for us. Abandoned, forsaken, despised by men, hemmed in on every side. And while he endured that, he had names upon his heart, bearing them before you. Lord, captivate us and amaze us again with the glorious cross of Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.